Good morning. It is always a privilege to open God's Word, and yet uh, times are strange in the way that we're doing that now. So uh, I feel in particular a pressing need to have God's Spirit attend to my soul as I preach God's Word this morning. So let me pray yet again. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would tend to the preaching of Scripture. Holy Spirit, you would exalt the person the work, the worth, the beauty, the brilliance, the splendor, the supremacy, the all-satisfying beauty of Jesus. Do that, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Some of you are familiar with a pastor by the name of John Piper. And some of you have read his book, Don't Waste Your Life. It is one of the first books I read when I became a Christian about 15 years ago. At the time, I was working for Coca-Cola, and I traveled a decent amount, and I distinctly remember sitting in a hotel room in Tucson, Arizona, reading this book. And it was exploding categories I didn't even know that I had. And in this book, Piper recounts the story of a couple of missionaries. He writes, In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. Then he asks, is this a tragedy? His answer, no, this is not a tragedy. That is glory. These lives were not wasted. And he goes on to show what a wasted life might look like. He writes, consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. The story titled, Start Now, Retire Early, tells about a couple who took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. They were living the American dream. He goes on, he writes, Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account of your Creator be this, playing softball, collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy, he writes. My point in reading that story is not to condemn softball playing or seashell collecting or retiring early. My point is to get you to think about this question. What does a wasted life look like? Or to ask it positively. What's the substance of life, true life? What does it look like to be rich in the most meaningful sense? What does life and riches in the fullest truest, most joyful sense 
consist of? These are the questions Jesus gives his attention to in our text for this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Let's read that, beloved. Hear the word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And these things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's the word of God. On the surface, we may read this passage and only see a rebuke from Jesus warning us about the danger of money and material possessions. And while that's there, if that's all we see, we'll either ignore it because we don't like it, or we'll have a vague sense of guilt because we only shallowly understand what Jesus is saying. I pray we see the burden of this text isn't just to warn us, but to make us wonder. Jesus wants us to be aware of the danger of riches that we might delight in the riches of grace. Jesus is not trying to take something from us, but give himself to us. Jesus is not trying to force limits on our wallets, but to free us to worship. Jesus is inviting us to reimagine the good life. And the main idea in this passage can be summed up in verses 15 and 20. Listen to verse 15 again. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 20, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't be full of greed so that you'll be full of life and truly rich. Don't seek earthly trinkets so that you'll be satisfied by eternal treasure. Do you see what Christ is doing? He is not calling you to reduce your desire for abundance. He's calling you to imagine such an abundance that this world and anything in it cannot satisfy. That's what he's doing. Simply put, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't covet so that you'll be rich. Don't covet so that you'll be rich. That's our guiding thought this morning. Uh, You know that I often love to have a night niece outline. I don't have that for you this morning, but I do have that thought. So don't covet so that you'll be rich. That's a paradoxical thought. But what I hope to show is how this passage is unpacking that very thing. Don't covet so that you'll be rich. With that in mind, let's continue to unpack the passage before us. And it's helpful to remember the context of this passage. Remember what Nathan preached last week. Jesus has been warning his disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In the the first 
12 verses of this chapter, Jesus is warning the, the crowd and his disciples about fear of man that leads to hypocrisy and tells them to fear God, which leads to a happy, joyful obedience. And then in verses 8 through 10, Jesus tells them who he is. He says, I am the Son of Man, the, the one reconciler between humanity and a holy God. And he's telling those all those who, who can hear him, he's saying, listen, if you acknowledge me, if you trust me, I will acknowledge you and bring you into relationship with God the Father. But if you deny me, I'll deny you and cast you into hell. It's verse 5. Eternally weighty words. And suddenly someone from the crowd interjects. What's this man's concern? Is he seeking wisdom to better understand God's word? Does he have a question for Jesus? What does it mean to acknowledge you and be accepted by God the Father? Is that what he's worried about? No. Here's what the man says. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We don't know all of the specifics of this family dispute, but I think we can begin to see this man's posture of heart. First of all, notice there's a level of respect for Jesus. He calls him teacher. This man even seems to understand that Jesus has some level of authority. He's asking Jesus to render a verdict. So in some way, this man has an elevated view of Jesus. But it's not elevated enough. He didn't come to Jesus asking for a decision. He came to Jesus demanding action. This man thought life was found in stuff and Jesus was going to be his shovel to dig up his rightful riches. Never mind, Jesus, you just said you're the eternal son of man, speaking about eternity and heaven and hell. Can you solve my money problems now, Jesus? He was seeking to use Jesus for what Jesus could do for him, not worship Jesus for who he was. This man believed nothing more than a prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel at all. Use Jesus to get what I want. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's a bit ironic, isn't it? The one who just said he's the son of man with all glorious authority refuses to judge a little dispute? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is essentially telling this man, you don't understand who I am, and you don't understand why I came. I did not come to solve petty, temporary money issues. I did not come to satisfy your small-minded desires. My mission, my calling, is much larger. I came to expose and heal the deeper issues of the heart. That's why Jesus goes on to teach not about inheritance laws, but heart-level issues that tempt to entangle us all. Look at verse 15 again. And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. He said to who? To them. Uh, given the context of what came before and what comes after, I take that the them to mean the crowd and the disciples. So after briefly addressing this man, Jesus turns his attention back to everyone, everyone who can hear him. And notice what Jesus assumes, that everyone who hears him will be tempted toward covetousness. 
Jesus doesn't say, listen, for some of you, this might be a problem at some point in life. And so if you think this might be an issue, you might be wise to listen up. It's not what he says. He flat out assumes covetousness is an issue for them. So he says, take care, be on guard. Two commands. First, take care. That is, look, see, realize, whether you realize it or not, realize covetousness is a temptation for you. Second, be on guard. That is, be vigilant to not let your soul be consumed by covetousness. That's what he's saying to the crowd. And beloved, he's saying the same thing to us today. I don't think we're much different than these people here in Luke 12. If Jesus assumes covetousness is a temptation for them, it's probably wise and humble for us to assume it's a temptation for me and for you. Our working hypothesis as we look into this text should be, this could easily be a problem for me also. Let's answer a question. What exactly is covetousness? What is Jesus warning us of here? I'll give it to you a couple ways. Covetousness is desiring too much stuff or desiring stuff too much. Covetousness is choosing and chasing earthly trinkets over eternal treasure. Covetousness attracts us to, to things and distracts us from God. See, the, the covetous heart is so full of things it has no room to treasure Christ. And as Jesus says in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Covetousness is a love of money and material possessions. And Jesus is saying, you cannot be marked by covetousness and love God. This is why one of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet. If we break the Tenth Command, you shall not covet, we also break the First Command, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is why the Apostle Paul repeatedly calls covetousness, idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry because it places gifts above the giver. The greed of the coveting heart says stuff is more precious than the Savior. And let's be honest. All of us, myself included, are tempted to this end. And the issue isn't money. Money simply gives expression to what we value. Right? So we, we value life and taste, so we give money for food. We value entertainment, so we give $12 a month to Netflix. We value education, so we give money for books and tuition. We value vacation, so we, so we give money for planes and hotel rooms. We value square footage, so we give money for a bigger house. We value safety, so we give money for face masks and hand sanitizer. We value gospel advancement, so we give money to the church and other ministries. See, what we do with our money in our hands shows what we value in our hearts. It's quite remarkable to think little pieces of paper and small plastic cards reveal what we most deeply treasure in our hearts. 
It's remarkable. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. And notice what he says. Notice that word all. Guard against all covetousness. That is, watch out for any level and all types of greed. How we can be tempted to covet more of what we have, and we can be tempted to covet what we don't have. Uh, the greed Jesus speaks of here comes not only from a love for money, but also excessive anxiety about it. Do you see that, beloved? So covetousness can arise from having too great affection for money, always wanting more, and covetousness can arise from excessive anxiety, always worried that I don't have enough. That's what Jesus will go on and teach in the next set of verses. See, coveting is a, is a root sin. And its weeds grow in all kinds of directions. And if we're not careful, it'll choke us out and entangle our soul and strangle our love for God and for neighbor. So Jesus is telling us, man, I, I'm not going to give in to your immediate desires. But Jesus is not being mean. He's not simply denouncing sin. He's inviting this man and us to a deeper satisfaction. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is getting at in the rest of verse 15. Look there. Verse 15, take care. Be on guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What's Jesus' concern? He wants everyone listening to have life, true life. His aim is not just to limit money. That's, that's moralistic. It's shallow, cheap, and unsatisfying. Jesus wants something more. He's saying, listen, if you covet stuff, you'll be empty and meaningless. Greed prevents you from being fully alive and truly rich. Don't covet so that you'll have life and be truly rich. And that word life there in verse 15 is the same word in verse 16 for soul. Jesus isn't speaking of biological life, simply breathing. He's going deeper. Again, drop down to verse 23. Life, same word, is more than food and the body more than clothing. The life Jesus is talking about doesn't consist of possessions. This life isn't determined by what we own. It's more than what we consume. This life isn't defined by number in a bank account. It can't be found in a vacation or a home or a title of our position. He's talking about the core of who we are, the animating center of all that we say, do, feel, and speak. And he says, life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. See, inside of each of us, there's a tendency to link who we are with what we have. And there's a tendency to draw a direct correlation between how much we have and our security and our hope. And the daily advertisements we see speak right into this temptation. Think about it. Just watch the commercials. Lexus is not selling you a car. They're offering you a style of life. Apple does not just make computers, watches, and phones. They're encouraging you to think different, their motto. Namely, that your life will be complete if you have their products. 
What about all those retirement and investment commercials? Notice how many of them play off fear. They assume that money is where you find your hope and security. And so they play off fear. And the next time you're actually able to go into a clothing store, pay attention. They're not just selling you jeans, shorts, and dresses. They're helping you envision how lavish life would be if you would just don their items. That's what they're doing. And so, so parents, let me encourage you to help your children navigate this part of life. They'll continually be tempted to believe the same lies we're tempted to believe, that, that joy, happiness, security, importance is found in money, assets, possessions, and the abundance of things. So use God's word. Use passages like this one to teach your children. Life is more than the abundance of possessions. Jesus is warning us all of the materialistic delusion that's presented to us. And I, I have personal experience with this. Uh, some of you know my life was a little different before I became a Christian and a pastor. Uh, I graduated with highest honors from Georgia Tech with an industrial and systems engineering degree. After that, I started a career with Coca-Cola where I quickly began to climb, climb the corporate ladder. By the time I was 25, I was a national level strategy manager for a Fortune 100 company making six figures. I had married my high school sweetheart Bought a new house in a nice suburban neighborhood, settled in a cul-de-sac with a fenced-in backyard and a two-car garage. And so naturally, we went and bought two new cars to put in that garage. For my wife, it was a seafoam green Maxima, leather seats and a sunroof, and even warmers for those cool days. For myself, glacier pearl white Nissan Pathfinder. I was manly. I had to have an SUV. Leather seats, of course, sunroof, bows audio system, the whole package. Traveling on the company's dime, taking vacations with my lovely wife. Nothing wrong with any of that. But I wasn't satisfied. There was something lacking. I had bought hook, line, and sinker into the American dream, and I caught it. And God in his kindness showed me it wasn't deeply fulfilling. I was running, chomping down on the wind, swallowing, hoping it'd fill me up. But I was just left empty. See, coveting tells you happiness lies just around the corner of that next paycheck, the next purchase, the next promotion, the next possession. It's a lie, though. Because every time you turn a corner, there's another corner. And... Typically, someone is just ahead of you, and you can never catch up. It's a lie that tempts all of us. So friend, if you're looking for life, deep, meaningful, lasting, joyful life, you won't find it in money and material wealth. No bright and shiny things will finally scratch the itch of your soul to give you lasting comfort. You were made to know and enjoy God himself. And no abundance of possessions can finally fulfill that. And that's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants you to have life to the fullest. Isn't that what he says? So in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And what is life, Jesus? I'm glad you asked. 
John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again in John 17, 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is not having things. Life is knowing God in the person of Christ. And Jesus knows if our heart is stuffed with things, we cannot treasure him. And so he's kindly warning us of the danger of superficial riches that we might delight in his supremacy. He's inviting us to reimagine the good life, a life free from running on the coveting treadmill that never stops so that we can get off and rest in him and have life. So my friends, not looking to Christ for eternal satisfaction this morning, would you consider his words? Are you willing to consider that looking to the things of this world for satisfaction is idolatry? Are you willing to confess that you've doubted God's goodness seeking the good life elsewhere? Are you ready to acknowledge Jesus is who he said he is, the eternally satisfying, true life-giving, crucified yet risen, Savior who stands ready to forgive you of your idolatry if you will come to him? That's you, talk to the person who invited you to watch. Maybe you're watching it with them. Reach out to them. If you just happen to stumble on this stream somehow, click one of the buttons and we'll follow up with you. And for the church family, beloved, let's praise God for his kindness in giving us these words. He's a good God. And let's evaluate our own hearts. Well, we might be tempted. So where are you tempted toward coveting? What does that look like for you? Are you, where are you saying, if I only had blank, then I'd be satisfied? Do you rejoice in the prosperity of your fellow church members, friends, and neighbors? Or do you envy it? What do you do when unexpected money comes your way? What's your first thought? Does your lifestyle look different because of the amount of money you give away and don't spend on yourself? Does it look any different? Are there areas you need to repent of your greed to God and ask a fellow brother or sister to come alongside of you and walk with you? And let's rejoice. Yes, let's repent, but let's rejoice that we get to continue doing what Jesus did here. We have the privilege of reminding each other of the dangers of covetous that we might delight in Jesus. That's our mission. Our mission, church, is not simply to make disciples that obey the rules of Christ. It's not our mission. Our mission is to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. Yes, that includes obeying his rules, but it's so much more. That's what Jesus is inviting us to, life. Think about that, beloved. What a privilege. We get to help each other enjoy the fullness of life in Christ. What a privilege. And I praise God for the ways that you all do that. In your community groups, disciple relationships, your friendships. May it abound all the more. And parents, continue to help your children do this, to delight in Christ. That's Jesus' aim, to point us to true and lasting riches. And to, and to help us feel that even more, he gives us this illustration, this parable in verses 16 through 21. Listen to those words again. And he told them a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus uses this man's question from the crowd, and then he gives a parable to show what a covetous life looks like. There's a rich farmer. He produces land, or his land produces so much crops, he runs out of storage space. He begins to consider, what, what shall I do with all my abundance? So far, so good. The man didn't lie, cheat, steal, or scheme. It appears he came across his wealth by hard work, wisdom, and God's providence. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad thing to work hard and receive a promotion. It's not wrong for your business to prosper. It's not bad to want investments to grow. Scripture even says it's wise to plan for later in life to save. These things are wise. But also notice, increasing material possessions isn't necessarily a blessing from God. We tend to always link those two. It's not always that case. It might lead to judgment as we see here. Prosperity might be a test of where we're placing our trust to reveal something in us. In any case, the material possessions themselves don't tell us what God is up to. What matters is the answer to the question in verse 17. Look at that again. Verse 17, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? How does this man answer? Huh, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, big, bigger one, build bigger ones for my goods and my grain, and I will say to my soul, eat, drink, be merry, kick up your, your feet for years, and just relax. That's his plan. And what does God say? Fool. This night your soul is required of you. This man is literally a damned fool. Strong, sobering language. Jesus is not pulling punches. He knows the dangers of greed that easily grip the heart like rust on metal, and it will begin to corrode. And because He loves us, He is tough and tender. He is strong and kind. And He tells this man, you're a fool. Why? What's wrong with his plan? I mean, he, he came across his wealth, honestly, as far as we can tell. What's wrong with this? Nothing. If there is no infinitely valuable, soul-thrilling, eternally enjoyable God who has displayed his all-satisfying glory, by raising Christ from the dead, then nothing is wrong with this man's approach to life. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your youth is futile and you're still in your sins. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So if our rebellion has not been atoned for, if Jesus is still in the grave, if heaven is uninspiring, boring, or unreal, 
then this man's way of living makes all the sense in the world. But if Christ died on the cross for the sins of his people, if Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, and if heaven is beyond what we can imagine, this man is a fool, and so would we be. Notice, this man is not called a fool for being productive and profitable. The issue is not even that he wanted to build bigger barns, per se. The issue is not accumulating, but selfishly hoarding. Do you notice this man's words? Circle in your Bible, underline, do whatever you do. His words are drenched in self. Count the I and the my spewing from his lips. I and my are here at least 10 times. How many times does he talk about God? There's no plans to honor God. There's no plans to love neighbor. It is all about self. This man's attraction to stuff has distracted him from God and placed all his attention on himself. His soul has shriveled down so small that he's satisfied with trinkets. That's tragic. It's a wasted life. And it's dangerous for us. Most of us, if not all of us, are prosperous. C.S. Lewis, in his book called Screwtape Letters, it's, it's a book written from the perspective of a demon, Screwtape, to, a, to one of his underlings, Wormwood. And Screwtape is writing to Wormwood how to distract Christians from loving the enemy, that is, loving God. In one of the letters, Screwtape writes this, If the middle years for a Christian prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. That's the danger. Not that we have stuff, but that stuff has us. And when stuff has us, we become selfish and small-minded, and that's why this man is called a fool. Because if our world revolves around material wealth and the abundance of possessions, we have chained our heart to what is merely passing away. That's what Jesus says here. In his foolishness, this man presumes upon God. He assumes that he'll be around for many years. And in those many years, he's going to self-indulge in all the things he has selfishly stored up for himself. But what happens? Verse 20. This night, your soul is required of you. Life is but a vapor. It's like a mist on a cool morning. It's there, but it soon vanishes. You heard that truth in the psalm that Nathan read, Psalm 62. The rich and the poor, they are lighter than a breath. We read it in scripture like Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows no more. We typically do all we can to not think about this. But in some way, times have changed. 
We can't read the news. We can't turn on the television. We can't peruse the internet without the reality of death confronting us. It's one of the things COVID-19 has done. It's making us realize and reckon with the reality of death. Think about this. this is what I've been thinking about this this week. Every time I have pulled a face mask over my nose and mouth this week, I'm admitting my life is fragile. Every single time. And so it is with you. So every time you pull a face mask on, we are agreeing with Scripture. We are fragile, mortal beings who will one day die. And we too will stand before God like this man. And we too, whatever we relied on in life, that's what we'll have to rely on in death. And money will let you down. Remember what we saw back in chapter 9. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his soul? This man was material wealthy, but he was spiritually poor. He gained the whole world and lost his soul. You cannot cherish money in life and rely on Jesus in death. You cannot live a life of selfish coveting and then look to Jesus save you after death. Jesus will not be reduced to an insurance policy that we simply cash in upon death and live however we want during life. It's not the way it works. And Jesus is kindly telling us this now. Money and material possessions will eventually let you down. They have no currency to buy your soul from God. Psalm 49. You can go read that this week. He says, look, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? Covetousness chains our hearts to things that are passing away. It doesn't matter who you are. When you die, you leave everything behind. The protection, the security, the joy promised by material wealth is only as real as an imaginary brick wall. It's not there. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived. When he died in the early 20th century, someone asked his accountant, how much did John D. leave behind? The accountant's reply, all of it. All of it. Your treasure today is part of a garage sale tomorrow. Your treasure today is part of a garage sale in the not-too-distant future. We don't like to think about that. But remember, Jesus is not calling us to decrease our desires for abundance, but to increase them. That's what he's doing. And so is Jesus calling us to give everything away and and live a life of complete poverty, to to not accumulate at all, that that all possessions are evil? Is is Jesus a petty tyrant that just wants to, to take everything out of our hands? No. No. That's not Jesus' point here, nor will you find that in the rest of Scripture's teaching. Remember what Jesus is doing. Don't covet so that you'll be rich. Rich toward God. Church, let's be rich. Rich toward God. Showing Christ is supremely valuable. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To say it another way, Jesus is saying, don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth like the rich man and be called a fool. Don't do that. Seek to be rich toward God and have life, full life now and forever. Jesus 
not only commends us to be rich, he commands us to be rich. It's Matthew 6. And as we'll see next week, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is not against us being rich. He just wants us to locate it in the place where it will never fade away. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? What is Jesus getting at? I think we can use this text to, to answer some of that. First of all, it's the opposite of laying up treasures for yourself on earth. It's the opposite of living as if true life is found in the abundance of possessions. Being rich toward God means using our money, our material wealth, whether we think we have a lot or we have a little. It's using it all to show we cherish God as supremely valuable. To be rich toward God is to treasure Christ above paycheck amounts and retirement accounts. To be rich toward God is to delight in Jesus, living in such a way to show that it's better to give than to receive, to share with others than to spend on self. To be rich toward God means looking to Jesus for salvation and satisfaction. To be rich toward God means investing in the church and other Christians. To be rich toward God means to give generously and sacrificially to advance the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. To be rich toward God means we consider the riches we have in Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, this man measured being rich by what was in his barns. Beloved, we measure richness by the blood of the cross. Behold, behold, Christ, truly God, giving up the riches of heaven to take on the poverty of humanity, dying for all the times we coveted, all the times in our greedy idolatry we valued the gift above the giver, and then victoriously overcoming death through his resurrection, that we might have the richness of knowing and enjoying God, being called beloved sons and daughters. That's richness. When we behold that Christ, money will cease to be the currency of our significance, our security, and our satisfaction. We'll be rich toward God using all that we have, to bring glory to his name and good to others around us. Seeing being rich toward God means we behold costly grace so that we are a content and generous people. That's what it means. Being rich in God, toward God means we don't have to covet because in Christ we have true life and the fullness of riches that will never fade away. And we know, beloved, we know the best is always yet to come. This world is passing away, and yet heaven is our home. This world fully restored, eternal treasures that will never pass away as we worship Christ Jesus together. Beloved, I'm so encouraged by how this marks you. By God's grace and for the glory of Christ, you do this well. There are rooms we have to grow, yes, pockets of covetousness in our hearts. We need the Spirit to work out. And yes, you are seeking to be rich toward God. It's evident in your giving to this church. It's evident in your generosity towards sublime gracia. It's evident in the ways you tangibly love each other and your neighbors. It's evident 
that you're seeking to be rich toward God as some of you make life decisions about where to live, where to work, so that you can remain part of this church or another healthy local church somewhere else, valuing what God values. So thankful for the ways you're seeking to be rich toward God. May we abound all the more. May we be rich toward God. And may we see it's not just that we shouldn't covet. We don't need to. We have Christ, and he's enough. Friend, if you're looking to be rich, that's what Jesus wants for you. Maybe not in the exact way you thought, but Jesus wants you to be rich and have the fullness of life. And so we invite you to join with us to lay hold of the riches that will never perish. Not in earthly trinkets, but eternal treasures, Christ Jesus himself. Beloved, let's praise God for his word and his grace. And let's say we don't need to covet because we have life and richness in Christ. Let's pray. God, you are gloriously good. We thank you for the richness, the robustness, the beauty of your word. Jesus, we're so thankful that you are tough and you are tender, that you are strong and you are kind, and that you point us to true abundance and true riches. Holy Spirit, give us the grace to live in this way, to live in such a way we delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.